Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Is magic real? Fine. An old wizard. Hmm. A wizard who's lost his faith in magic. That's ironic. Ironic and sad. The great impasse has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I like big boobs and I cannot lie. Does that mean I'm poor? It might make you poor. <laughs> it might actually. <laughs> Depending on where you go in Vegas, that can lead to, to, to poverty. To poverty. Yeah. No, but you're, you've got the causal direction, I think. I know. We have the up. science to tell us. We have, this is, uh, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. <laughs> And I am I'm okay with any size breasts. I love I love them all. I love them all. I like big man boobs. Like I like it when when like a good friend of mine has gotten so heavy that like they yeah. just have tits. <laughs> they can be your wingman. <laughs> a good wingman should have tits. <laughs> we yeah, we have science. We're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about it. So on today's episode, we're gonna talk about the Dunning Kruger effect in the second segment. Um, what it is, some pay, what the research is that supports it. <laughs> Are you waiting for me to say? <laughs> Are you gonna pick up on this? Because <laughs> I realized I, I know barely it. The Dunning Kruger effect is the the um, <laughs> increasingly popular documented effect that people who know less about something are more confident that they know about that thing. The more expert you are. The more, uh, the less confidence you have in your knowledge. The less they know, the more they know it. We, that's why. That's why we exude confidence. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to be especially kind of slow today, just because I'm very hungover. Oh yeah, you did a you did a public event. I did. It was uh, philosophically drinking. That's at, great. Um, Rudyard's Pub in Houston and. But it was fun. It was good. It was good. There were a few, couple of VBW listeners, at least uh, four or five, that came out. And um, that's uh, amazing. Yeah. Remember when all we wanted was four or five listeners? I think if we're not careful to tonight, we might be headed back there. Four or five <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so let's talk about this paper we're going to talk about in the first segment, which is kind. Of, it's unbelievable. Uh, it is a. It's well, just describe it. Say it's really it unbelievable. So this is, I don't remember how I came across it just on Twitter, but, you know, we, we mentioned that um, uh, Neuroskeptic was failing us. I found this somewhere else, but it's definitely the kind of paper that you would tweet out. It's called yeah. Resource Security Impacts 
Men's Female Breast Size Preferences by Viren Swamy and Martin Tobey. And this was published in PLOS One. It's the open access journal. And a good journal? Um, you know, it's a it's a funny one. So so PLOS One, I think, has had a reputation of being a not good journal um, in the eyes of many people, but it actually publishes uh really like sometimes really good stuff, but people usually work their way down to get there. Um and sometimes it's just trash. There's I don't want to shit on it because in fact like there've been really good papers in it, but it is it is considered an easier journal to publish in. But it is open access, which is a good thing, and it is peer reviewed. So it's not just it's not a scam journal, right? It's not like a <laughs> it's not like one of those that you get. So this is so this was just I couldn't believe it. Uh I'll like I'll just kick I get get to the to, to the to the heart of it. Uh the argument is that <laughs> because as we all know, breast size in in human women is an indicator of of fat reserves this in turn might indicate that that woman has access to resources and so they conducted these two guys conducted a test of this hypothesis two one was a study um, from men in um, malaysia from three different cities that vary in socioeconomic status so here their thinking was men who are from lower SES groups, poor men in Malaysia, that they would prefer women with larger breasts because this was an indicator of like, hey, there's, there's like good shit in the environment. Whereas men from higher socioeconomic status would prefer smaller breasts. The second one is the killer though. This was like, well, like let's not do a correlational study. We want to test this directly. So they, they got guys... They got guys who are either coming out of, of a cafeteria or going into a cafeteria. They selected them uh, for being either hungry or satiated. And they asked them to rate what their preference for a women's body shape would be. And they used this like 3D modeling of uh, <laughs> like that you could, that you could like rotate. And what they found was that uh, hung- hungry men like bigger boobs because after all you're hungry you're looking for resources you know i can't even talk about this so let me just i know i always say something along these lines but is this real like this isn't a hoax or at least this is a real journal this isn't a parody not only that tamler this thing led me down a rabbit hole so i looked up the first author because i was like this could be like a like a reverse james Lindsay. Like somebody trying to like mock uh, evolutionary psych. And this guy, Viren Swami, like, you know, no knock on you. I don't know who he is. Like, I'm sure he's a nice guy. Has a shit ton of publications. There is apparently a just a cottage industry of uh, boob size research. And this guy's at the forefront at the forefront of it because it is a pressing it's a pressing question tamler no it's a it's a way better cottage industry than like trolley problems (laughs) probably but like there's a ton like let me let me so there's one called perception of female buttocks and breast size in profile that was from uh, 2007 some earlier earlier work of his so this is actually what he does. Not all of his papers are like this. He does, he does some work on why people believe conspiracy theories. 
But this is one from 2007 in a journal called Body Image. A lot of these are just journals I've never heard of. Unattractive, promiscuous, and heavy drinkers, colon, perceptions of women with tattoos. <laughs> so, so this guy is just maybe somebody who is not allowed to watch porn at home and so has developed a whole research program about we, being we, able uh, Yeah, maybe. We don't, the, the nice thing is we don't even need to ad hominem him because, <laughs> like, what's the logic here? Yeah, we should state it. The idea is that if you are poor, um, we would have evolved a trait, a disposition to look for women with high access to resources. Yeah. Big breasts signal high access to resources. So people who are less economically secure will will be more attracted to those women because of the signaling of high access to resource. Yeah. But okay, so let's talk a little bit about this. Like so there is a weird there's a weird thing going on with the fixation on the female anatomy because if it is the case that uh, body fat indicates the presence of rich resources then people, uh, poor people should like fat dudes and hungry people should love fat dudes too, right? Like that is a better indicator that there are good resources, which leads me to my other thing. Like breast size doesn't just change like that when, like when you, like it's not that, it's not that people who eat a lot just get huge boobs. Right. I, w- I know people like there are plenty of people who probably well, like wish that were the case because fi- wait five, so there's a few things yeah. that you were saying that you sort of ran together so the first is the fixation on female uh, yeah. versus male like yeah. nobody's trying to no where's the experiment about guys Johnson yeah there's a t- there's there's just so much work on on uh, on what men find attractive in women. Sexist men prefer big breasts, apparently. Um, men who want a submissive partner prefer small breasts. Hmm. Uh, but men who are independent and non-nurturant prefer large breasts, which nice. was, by the way, a study done in 1968 that, if, that I actually tracked down, and it is ridiculous. Like, it can't be true. <laughs> Yeah, you did. Men, get, <laughs> you yeah, did I got go yeah. a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> men financially stable prefer small breasts. Men ready for fatherhood prefer large breasts. So a, a ton of this work has been done, and it's hilarious to read about the methodology because they're like apparently very concerned that early research only used pencil like line drawings, which weren't <laughs> ecologically valid. So like they right. wanted to use like real three D models. That fixes the that 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 fixes it then. Yeah. So <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> here. here. I, I have a couple just, you know, as a, not a evolutionary biologist, could there possibly be a set of genes that were triggered to, like, if you sense that you're poor, to make w- women with bigger breasts more attractive and uh, women with smaller breasts less attra- attractive and yeah. vice versa, if like what how is this so there's no there, like i'm not an evolutionary there's i'm not an evolutionary biologist so it should say with a grain of salt but to like i don't think there is any plausible account for that especially there's given no the plausible biological theory. mechanism for this i mean there is a lot of work on on what poverty might do psychologically but um so like 
we know that, for instance, it can affect like the stress of being poor and being in, in environments where you're scraping together anything like whatever you can to live. Like that stress affects all sorts of things. I just don't think that there's a, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but in order for this to be true, there has to be a mechanism that is trying to track resources in the environment by looking at somebody else's body. And that has to be a fairly reliable signal that there are uh, resources in the environment. But the problem is, and, and they don't even really flesh this out, but breast size is, is variable, right? So, so it's not as if when, you, when hunter-gatherers moved to that area of the, the savanna that had lots of game. Wait, what? You would have to have what they're arguing is that this that breast size is a reliable indicator of the resources right. and environment. Right. So if you were like a, a hunter gatherer and you're walking around, and you see a woman with big boobs, you follow her back like you're supposed to find a much like there's a lot supposed to be a lot more food like, you know, around well, only there. if like, you're poor, you would do that. No, but they're saying poverty, they're, they're saying that it is, that the reason, like poverty is a proxy here, because remember, they're also doing the thing with hungry and, 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 and not hungry men of the same socioeconomic status. So, so the main thing is whether you're hungry or not, and socioeconomic status is a proxy for determining hunger? So both socioeconomic status and hunger are ways to measure people who are resource uh, lacking in resources. Okay. Right. So, so but these are two different ways of wow. attacking this, this same. <laughs> um, so then and, you see someone with big breasts and there's this, these biological mechanisms that says be attracted to her because then you can follow her and get, yeah. You want to eat, yeah. buddy? You, 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 yeah. you starving, you, you hurting, you hurting for some, uh, for some resources. Follow the big boobed girl and, and, you know, marry her or whatever. It's like the pimp gene. <laughs> Which is not to say, by the way, that breasts, that breasts, the presence of breasts aren't here for a selected reason. But, but the variability in breasts, in breast size, that, like, I'm sorry, I just, this just can't be true. It is, though. I mean, I suppose I, it could be true, but it's so many alternate explanations spring to mind, and they do address that, and some of the funniest quotes come from addressing that. But Oh, my God. It, the limitations. It, it, <laughs> this is the thing that people always ridicule evolutionary psychology for. You're positing the presence of something that nobody has remotely provided any sort of biological account of how this could possibly be true. You know, this is the one thing I've learned. I have like very, very good colleagues in my department who are, you know, they study the, the physiological mechanisms in animals. And like, you know, I have a colleague who studies brain size across all species over evolutionary history. They're like hardcore. And they have one thing that they've taught me is that you can't, you shouldn't say shit about, about evolutionary biology unless you really have learned it because this is the this is the constant critique of of like crappy evolutionary psychology that they're just making up a story to explain this shit just so stories yeah just so stories that that have the the whiff of science but seriously like like just to take it on its like let's just assume that this is a plausible hypothesis wouldn't you expect that um 
that obese people would be more attractive across the board if you're resource resource starved. That is something that really does fluctuate in a reliable way based on how much access to food you have. But then they'll say no, because being skinny is like a handicap. And that signal, that's signal. Yeah, like, I know. They have a real story for pretty much <sighs> any kind of eventuality, right? The handy. Yeah. And it's not that some of these things aren't true. It's just that so many of them are just post hoc and you just have. <laughs> and like, they, you know, they, they say like, well, this, this isn't the only reason. And obviously there's sociocultural factors that even. Although propose. now that I'm thinking of it. Did you ever see the f- kind of famous Black Jeopardy with Tom Hanks? Uh, you know, Black Jeopardy on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. Uh, yeah. So it was a kind of a brilliant weird. skit. The premise of it was that, that Tom Hanks is this blue collar, mm. like, lower class guy, and he goes on Black Jeopardy. <laughs> and up till they get to the Lives Matter <laughs> question. <laughs> They agree on pretty much everything. <laughs> okay, let's go to big girls for 200. Okay, and the answer there, skinny women can do this for you. Doug, what is not a damn thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my wife, my wife, she's a, she's a sturdy gal. Yeah. That is my man right okay. there. Go do it. Go do it. Right. So maybe Actually, like maybe that uh, that like that's uh, a new hypothesis for you to test. I, I think that it's a more plausible hypothesis that <laughs> that ass size would be correlated with with this than than boob size. Um, uh, I just don't. I mean, boob size fluctuates through the lifespan, like once you hit puberty and it's not. You know, it is interesting that w- women are the only uh, female humans are the only are the only mammals that have permanent boobs. Like all the other animals actually, you know, they get them when they're when they have when they're nursing and then yeah. then they just disappear. And so, you know, there I think there's a lot of uh, you could speculate a lot about why it I just can't get to this part to this it's just like okay, well, let's let's read some quotes. Yeah. When when the two authors are are talking about the as good scientists talking about the limitations, one of the things they say is third, our focus on breast size comes at the expense of other breast related variables that may have impacted upon participants' ratings, such as symmetry, shape, and areola size. Because after all, they only showed a woman in a bikini. That's a confound right there. Areola size, right? It's it's just yeah it wasn't manipulated so we don't know and um, yeah. Yeah. further further research like the can I read one of like yeah, just yeah. I mean I have so many that it's like yeah. the of course this is not to suggest <laughs> that adipose <laughs> tissue reserves are the only thing right. indicated by larger breast size if this were the case then larger breast size should be no more important than fat stored in any part of a woman's body right. Rather, breast size may act as a cue of null parity, age, sexual maturity, and fertility. And furthermore, there may be other more important cues cues of fat storage compared to the breasts, such as overall body size. This just addresses your objection. This may help to explain the small to moderate, the small... (laughs) 
small to moderate effect sizes uncovered in both studies yeah. report. Yeah. That, that that right there. Oh my <laughs> god. We're stumped by the by the <laughs> by those small to moderate effect sizes. Like this should be almost unanimous, but it's, like I love how they set the stage for like, you know, hey, look, if you want to argue with us, this further research. We need to do more. We we this is, they're even like bodying themselves like when in the in the limitations because they're coming up with like plausible alternative explanations that I, that I hadn't even thought of. They're like, (laughs) totally like, like, like it is possible that figures with larger breast size were perceived as heavier overall. If so, it is possible that our findings were driven by body size preferences in general, rather than breast size per se. And it's well, why didn't you fucking like do one more little manipulation (laughs) of like thigh size so that you could have some discriminant validity to your actual test of, of this hypothesis. So here's another one. Nor do our findings deny a role for sociocultural factors in shaping breast size judgment. Yeah. It has been argued, for example, that breasts are one of the most important sites of objectification of the female body in socioeconomically developed setting. And media targeted at some men appear to fetishize large breasts. Media yeah. targeted at some men appear appear we can't we can't we can't totally you know we we can't take a stand on this but i'm just saying like it it appears to fetishize large blessed like every as an aside this should not be used to suggest that the importance of breasts varies across cultures and that our methodology artificially inflates the importance of breast size earlier ethnographic research indicates that breasts are eroticized in many different cultures this is just uh, so so here's here's a plausible alternative uh hypothesis that i that it's to me equally plausible um if if their reasoning is right and um people from traditionally um impoverished societies prefer women with large boobs then um over time, sexual selection should mean that they actually get larger boobs. Like, like right. the, the breast size grows over time. And then, right. uh, and perhaps at the expense, like a peacock's tail, like at the expense of other, re- like distribution of whatever fat in the body or any other uh, indicator of fitness. And so, and so over time, you should, you should see that in poorer cultures, um, so long as they've been poor for a while, women have bigger boobs. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't. Then, if so, then breast size would no longer be a reliable indicator of how rich the environment was. Uh, this <laughs> like, is like an a priori objection. <laughs> this is an a priori objection. <laughs> I really do want to know if there's any uh, good evolutionary psychology on on uh, dick aesthetics. Yeah, I predict that a, a upward curve ought to have been selected uh, because it gave women more pleasure, thus uh, making <laughs> making it more likely <laughs> they would tell their friends to fuck you. <laughs> hey, you know, but what throws a wrench in all of this is that how lesbian women and gay men are thwarting our evolutionary hypotheses by selecting on like what are they doing? Like how are they even picking? Like how? What is what is there to say who you should be attracted to? They're like Burden's ass. It's like I just don't know. Like I'm just paralyzed. There's nothing. Actually, this dude. uh, Actually, this dude actually did publish something on 
ratings of attractiveness for women of different body mass index indices index yeah indices. he surveyed uh, lesbian feminist so this just goes to like the mind state of this research he got feminist and non-feminist women by what i don't know what measure do they like christina off summer <laughs> only if they like facts yeah. um and and he like he he wanted to test whether or not there would be i don't know what the hypothesis was some interaction between feminism and 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 sexuality but he asked all of the women what bodies they find attractive the only finding that was there was that lesbian women report that and it's not even who you're attracted to but just who you find attractive um that lesbian women uh, choose a body type that's higher in in body mass index than straight women which <laughs> again I don't know. Like, why? This is the kind, exact kind of study that needs to be pre-registered. I haven't talked about any of the data, but it's you know, it's a very, very simple statistical test, and the numbers they report, like if if they're you know if they're right numbers, like they they do show a significant difference. But but they could have spliced the data in different ways. This is exactly the kind of thing that would be suspicious that they because like they they selected only people who are on. Two ends of the scale, hungry and not hungry, not people kind of in the middle. They they split up the ratings into you know five categories of breast size. There's a lot of ways in which you could p hack the data in order to find something significant. But at the end, in spite of all the limitations they highlight, they say that these limitations, notwithstanding, the present sets of results provides ample evidence that breast size may play may play a role in men's assessment of female access. To, to resources. All they never things, tested that. Right. Fuck. God. They never tested that. It's it's purely that they prefer them. Yeah. And so they and they assume they prefer women with access to resources if they're poor. All things being equal, yeah. men from relatively low socioeconomic context and who experience temporary hunger <laughs> rate women with larger breast sizes more attractive than men from high socioeconomic context or are experiencing satiety? Satiety? I was actually wondering. I think it's satiety. If you read that that sentence, and maybe this could be something like a future gimmick, future VBW gimmick, like like real evolutionary psychology or fake evolutionary (laughs) psychology. You know, like, and then the person had to judge whether they thought it was real or whether it's something that we made up. Like, if I read that, would you say fake or real? I would have said fake. I I would have too. I mean, there is, they're you know, they're bordering on some of that real peer review. Like, I wish real peer review would not just not just like fuck with the postmodernists. Yeah. They would actually put some of this shit up there because, like, they cite a bunch of this stuff. People look at eye tracking of men looking at women. And there is something like, look, I'm not going to say that this person or these researchers are sexist, but like, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there's something fucked up about that this being the obvious research question to ask. <laughs> Like, we got this amazing, amazing device that allows you to see exactly where human beings are looking. Oh, get some boobas up on the screen. So I don't always agree with my stepmother, but here, I, I now think Me Too has gone too far. If you could attribute sexism to people who are purely invested in a scientific 
enterprise. <laughs> just <laughs> wanting. <laughs> then, then I was ready. I, to, I, I was ready to jump on you about the patriarchy. <laughs> I I challenge anybody to read just the reference titles of this paper and not tell me that this is this is uh, incredibly incredibly weird. I feel like we didn't do it justice, and I am apologize, but really, if all we do is give you the link to this, we have done you a great service. It is high comedy. It is a comic, <laughs> comic masterpiece, actually, this whole paper. I, and I have to say this, and like our, like I would like to hear from our, our women listeners. You know, they talk about the male gaze, not as yeah. in the homosexuals, but like as in, <laughs> as in, the, as in the look. Um, male gaze i i I can't help but think that at the conferences when they talk about this stuff (laughs) there's just not that many women i would just it just feels weird man if there were a group of women talking about how um the bulge in your in your (laughs) pants was a, a good fitness indicator i would feel really weird walking into a crowd that like of people who study that and i'm like my life is good like i don't have anything to worry about <laughs> like but i would still feel weird. i'd be psyched <laughs> hey ladies check out the bulge this, it, high it, access it, to resources <laughs> all right uh we were gonna do a guilty's confession but maybe oh, since yeah. this has gone on we should uh table that let's table it i wasn't right. happy with mine anyway was too, I wasn't too, either. It was too I feel obvious. Terribly guilty about mine. So, uh, but I did want to get cleansed, like you people believe. Like you just say, "Oh, I did this." You say a couple of hail marys, and you're good. Like Taylor, I'm not fine. Catholic, but also, didn't you read the Bible last time? Who knows if we go into the ground like animals? Right. Well. This was probably not as edifying as our discussion of Ecclesiastes, but uh, we'll be right back to talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to take a moment to thank all the people who get in touch with us, um, who email us, who contact us in all the various ways that you do. We got a bunch of really nice feedback about the Ecclesiastes episode. That who knew? <laughs> I, I know it's it's it was really gratifying because I don't think either of us went into it with any high expectations. Um, it's not like we were talking about the intellectual dark web or something, you know, <laughs> maybe uh, it's a lesson that if we talk about things that we actually like intrinsically, yeah. that like it'll actually make for a better episode. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's right. You know, like the Borges episodes are like that. Uh, mm-hmm. some of the movie episodes are like that for me where, you know, we go into something with that kind of naive excitement <laughs> that exactly, um, is as opposed to when we trash, uh, an article like we did in the last segment. 
So, yes, um, to get in touch with us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet us at Tamler, at Peas, at Very Bad Wizards. You can like us on Facebook. You can join the discussion on our subreddit. You can like us, follow us. Fuck. Follow us on Instagram. And you can rate us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, give us a review so that we stay in the, at least in the what's hot section, <laughs> even if they've stopped ranking us for some reason. I think we're uh, back, by the way. I think we're back. Oh, we are good. Yeah. You can also support us in more tangible ways. You can, first of all, go to our support page, click on the Amazon link before you buy any purchase, large purchases, small purchases, it all helps, and we really appreciate that. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal, possibly even a recurring donation on PayPal. Is that right? Uh, yeah, you can do that. And, and in fact, I'm, we're looking into uh, being able to share some of the bonus content with our recurring PayPal donators. Um, yeah, so, okay, good. Because I know a lot of international people can't use Patreon, so we appreciate all you PayPal donators. Plus, there are people who think Patreon is like the, oh, yeah, evil. the gulag right. Soviet thought police. Um, That's right. That's right. So, Which we're p- apparently fine with. We, yeah, we're totally <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> We'd be first in line to like erase people from history. And I'm all for a very bad Wizards listener <laughs> starting their own uh, donation system and... and you know, yeah, bringing us in to beta test it. <laughs> we are though just scrambling to figure out how to find the time to just do the stuff that <laughs> exactly. we do. Yeah. Um, we did just drop a episode, a bonus episode on Patreon for our two dollar and up listeners on uh, Star Trek: The Inner Light, which I enjoyed, and I hope listeners did too. Um, and we got we got people signing up. Yeah, we got people signing up for it. So, um, And anytime you sign up, you can get access to all of our bonus content. So all of our bonus episodes by putting in the um, RSS feed that will give you access to everything. Or if you don't want to do that, you can always just scroll through all the posts and get all the bonus content since the very beginning. All your beats, all your beat volumes, and all the bonus episodes. So, oh, and I think uh, Jesse, Natalia, and I are planning on doing another one soon, possibly on Inland Empire, possibly on Lost Highway. And this is news to you live on air. I I actually ended up uh, talking to Barry Lamb about doing a Star Trek episode um, for for both his and our Patreon uh, subscribers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How how do you feel? (laughs) Version. Listen, you're the one off having threesomes. Uh, threesomes? <laughs> yeah, with Natalia and Jesse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Not yeah. the good kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you can uh, become one of our beloved Patreon patrons, and we really appreciate that. It's our most consistent form of income. Ads have slowed down. Sponsors have slowed down. Um, so right now... Um, you know, 
We're they relying know, on them. They don't need to know that, Tamler. They, yeah. they need to think that we're turning down sponsors. We're tur- well, we are turning down sponsors, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> we shouldn't be, but we are turning down sponsors <laughs> that we don't feel like we can uh, fully endorse. So, um, or at least, you know, that we're a little worried about. Anyway, um, yes, we really appreciate your support and we appreciate just all the different ways you get in touch with us. It was really nice to see some listeners that philosophically drinking at Rudyard's Pub, that that event um, that I did a couple of days ago. And that I was I don't know how the first segment went last night because I was just <laughs> so exhausted and hung over uh, from the previous. I night. just thought you were drunk and high. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I was, <laughs> hey, those aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I j- just made quick mention of being on Freakonomics last time. And yeah. I wanted to say we, we recorded this Freakonomics live episode that just got released as, as we're recording. And, uh, this was in New York city and it was in front of a live audience and there were, uh, no very bad whistlers, <laughs> very bad Richard listeners there. <laughs> Nobody came up to me and said, hey, I know you from your other podcast. Well, so, that's know. why we should do a live episode in Houston rather that's than right. New York. We're going to be in together, right? One of the mm-hmm. rare times that we're together, we're going to be in Vancouver for the American Philosophical Association um, uh, meetings in Vancouver, British Columbia. And we're making no promises, but if you are a Very Bad Wizards listener and you will be in town and you think a meetup might be fun, uh, just tweet to us at the Very Bad Wizards account or at, at our personal accounts. And, and if there's enough interest, maybe we'll go grab a beer with, but not, not the weird ones. Don't be weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can be no. a little weird. Yeah, I'm I sure mean, all everyone's, a little weird. everyone's a little weird. So, yeah, that would be fun um we may do that we'll be there from april i'm gonna be there from the 16th to the 20th yeah 16th yeah okay well it's uh so thanks everybody and let's get to our main topic so um our main topic today is uh a, a topic I don't think we've discussed. In fact, like weirdly, some of these social psychology effects that that are supposed to be part of my job, I rarely talk about. Um, but this is the Dunning Kruger effect. Um, it is a phenomenon named after two researchers who were at Cornell University, and it's basically uh, an effect that. Let me see if I do it justice explaining the gist of it. People who don't know very much about any given domain tend to think they know a lot more than they do. So uh, being ignorant about a domain leads to um, self-enhancement of the very biased variety. And at the same time, and we'll explain why, if you are at the top of your domain, if you're like an expert in your field or in your area of knowledge or in whatever performance, uh, you're good at, you tend to underestimate your performance uh, relative to other people. So, so you have this, this weird effect. It's, it's often referred to as unskilled and unaware from the very first article they published um, back in, I think, the late 90s, 99. Which, by the way, an aside, the original paper was published by a grad student named Justin Kruger and, his, and the professor named David Dunning, and it was Kruger and Dunning. And mm-hmm. 
for some reason, it is called the Dunning-Kruger effect, <laughs> which is just shitting on grad students. And Dunning, whenever he talks about it, is always sort of jokes about like, I don't know how this happened, but let me just tell you, a lot of the grad students at Cornell used to go onto the Wikipedia and actually change it to the Kruger-Dunning effect, and it would miraculously get changed back. That's what happened. That's capitalism right there. The exploitation. <laughs> That's right. So pyramid scheme, as people have often referred. Yeah. Um, but the reason I, so the reason, at least one of the reasons that I thought it might be interesting to talk about is for some reason in the last few years, a lot of people talk about this. So it's like in popular press. Like I always hear people referring to the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's like, it's a very, very weird thing. It would be like, it'd be like the media all of a sudden talking about Gettier cases. Because it was just like finding in social psychology that was, you know, fairly just sort of like just about our our little section of the field. And and now it's a very, very popular way to to explain. Yeah. Well, I mean, so let me ask you this. Does its recent popularity coincide with the Trump election and <laughs> with just the general dumbing down of political debate over the last couple few years because of social media, because of Twitter, because of, I, you know, I, that's a good question. I wish I had done a little bit of research into like the, the, how much the phrase is used. I feel like I started hearing it maybe, you know, like four or five years ago, but I'm sure that it's gotten um, even more cited because of that. It's like a very smug way of, it's like actually a pretty smug way of accusing people of being dumb. Right, exactly. Like, I mean, Vic, I think you, it's always liberals accusing conservatives of it or using them as an example. And I think part of the sort of the sinister aspect of the effect is you think it applies to other people, but not you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, where it really um, applies to all of us. So just to get a sense of how, what the boundaries of this effect are, I take it that if I know nothing about a field, like if you ask me about um, some, you know, organic chemistry or something yeah. like that, I'm not going to overestimate my abilities about about right. that. So you, right. I that, can't be totally ignorant. That's right, and 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 in fact, the the um, I, I think that's one of the 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 crucial sort of features of this bias is that it's knowing a little bit that seems to draw, get the effect going. You know, students who take like one biology class um, uh, feel like they know a ton about evolution, right? Yeah. Um, way more than people. And I remember this myself. I remember, <laughs> I remember literally feeling after I took intro psych, like, wow, man, I just know everything about psychology. Like, I don't know where to go from here. No, it's it's like the most cringeworthy memory <laughs> I have was after taking economics, like macroeconomics um, or uh, yeah, I think it was macroeconomics or micro. I don't know. I don't even remember. the difference. <laughs> I went back like, you know, one Christmas <laughs> break. I was a freaking freshman and I was lecturing people about like <laughs> economics. Supply issues and, and demand. <laughs> oh, God, it was just. It's so embarrassing how, and I, you know, I think that is, you, it's, this is something you see in college students because they take a class. I mean, students do this all the time. They'll raise their hand and they'll start like 
informing me about some, <laughs> you know, psychological effect because they took <laughs> uh, intro psych and, and you know. But. Exactly. I, I have actually, so, so you're right, it's cringeworthy. And I, I know that these students, <laughs> in retrospect, might feel uh, the same thing that I feel now. But I had a student come in. I was teaching a seminar in social psychology and I had a student um, whom I love, actually. But she started telling me about my own Chip and Tyrone study. Like when I was lecturing on trolley problems and I was just smiling, just waiting, just waiting for her to finish the explanation. Um, so there's some sort of sweet spot of a little bit of knowledge where you start to vastly overestimate your abilities. Yeah, I don't and I don't know what like like the, you know, the the critical dosage is. Right? I just know that it's that it's knowing a bit that leads it's not being in complete ignorance and and then how much of an expert do you have to be where the effect reverses so usually this is this is uh talked about in in percentiles um so at what what portion of the distribution are you so so are you at the top are you at the top quartile of the distribution um I don't know that we have precision about like where it starts coming out, but I, I believe that it is um, that the studies, at least that I'm familiar with, look at people who are at the bottom 25% and the top 25% percentile of the distribution and, and show this effect there. Let me d maybe distinguish this from a more general effect that, that has been found over and over again in psychology, at least in the psychology of, of non-Eastern uh, peoples like Western folks which is the above average effect, which probably yeah. most people are familiar with, that, that most people think they're better at um, a host of, of like positive traits. It's sometimes called the Lake Wobegon effect, I guess. Um, but the idea is that if you ask people, my favorite example of this is, uh, I'll forget the percentages, but if you ask professors how, how they stand compared to all other university professors in terms of like, say, clarity of their lectures or the quality of their lectures it's a it's like it's like most professors rate that they're in the 90th percentile <laughs> which um is statistically impossible most people can't be better than most people right right so so uh so that's yeah. just overestimating your ability in general in, in general and on positive traits not and knowledge necessarily, not, um, it's, it's, you know, it's found in a whole bunch of stuff. It's found in skills like driving. Like most people think they're better drivers than others. Um, most people think they are more moral, better sense uh, of humor, less, right? Better sense of humor, let, you know, less biased. You alluded to this. Most people think they're less biased yeah. than, than other people. Um, and so that seems to be a robust and general effect where people just kind of inflate their standing on most positive things. Um, now you can get rid of this by, well, you can sh show that this gets l lower and lower depending on how you ask the questions. So if I ask a student, say at Cornell, how smart are you compared to the average person? You you'll get a, a fairly big uh, like effect. But in fact, they might be smarter than the right. average person. But um, um or they if you might ask have just them, paid a, like a track coach to say <laughs> that they're a track star. Um, the, they're, uh, if you ask people how smart are you compared to the average Cornell student, 
um, then you start getting a, a bit lower. But that's just not assuming yeah, Cornell he, students are smarter on average right. than the population. That makes sense. So there's that that so there's a rational explanation. But here's where it starts getting interesting. If you ask people um, how smart they are compared to the average uh, student at their university, um, it goes down a bit. If you ask them how smart they are compared to the random person sitting next to them, it goes down even more. So it's not just that they're sort of rationally adjusting. It's that there's something about the concrete comparison. There's something about the abstract level of comparison that when you think about an average person or an average Cornell student that lets you create sort of in this, self, in this self-enhancing way, you create yeah. somebody who's not as good as you in your head. And it's harder to do when that person is right now, when you're thinking about an actual, actual person. Yeah. And so one of my favorite findings is, is um, also from David Dunning. You can show that people use idiosyncratic trait definitions. So if I ask people, how smart are you? And what you get is that a bunch of people report that they're smarter than average. Um, what you find is that people are using very different definitions of what smart means. So some people might say like, well, I'm just street smart, right? I'm, or I'm savvy. Like I'm not a sucker. I'm not, maybe I'm not book smart, but so they use that definition yeah. in order to, to self-enhance. Whereas somebody else like us might be like, well, I'm book, <laughs> I'm book smart. That's what, that's what I, that's what smart really means. I'm street smart. Yeah, I'm sure you are. You're from, you're from Southie. Um, and, uh, so if you give people a definition, like if you define what you mean, like how intelligent are you? And by intelligence, we mean this, then the effect seems to go down. So people, it seems to be like when you give people a little bit of flexibility, they find a way for the self-enhancement to creep in. Um, but you are distinguishing this from a Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> this, this seems to be like maybe part of it. Um, the, the motivated part to seem like you're better or to really believe that you're better than other people seems to be kind of at the heart of the Dunning-Kruger effect is just that in the Dunning-Kruger effect, what's going on is this additional thing, I believe, which is that a little bit of knowledge is now really, really doing, doing a, like work on the self-enhancement. And so yeah. what Dunning and Kruger are saying is it's the ignorance. So like, Say you and I after taking our intro courses. Yeah. The claim, the central claim is because we have no idea what we don't know, like all of the other things that there are, like our denominator is off, right? Like I felt like I knew, you know, 98 out of 100 things to know in psychology. What I didn't realize is there was, I knew 98 out of like 10,000, you know, 400 right, things. Yeah. And it's that numerator, speaking metaphorically, that's driving my sense of how smart I am. That so, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So and the, if you know the, that your numerator is zero, then you won't. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so what seems to be happening with the people at the top end of the distribution is something different. So, and I think that we make this mistake all the times when, uh, or at least I do in lecture, when I say, when I start talking about the trolley problem, for instance, I feel like, uh, like I'm just telling them something they already know. Uh, like yeah. I don't need to explain what this is, right? Everybody knows the trolley problem. And so I'll say like, raise your hand if you've heard of the trolley problem. And like barely any of the kids raise their hand. Yeah, no, right. I know. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and yeah, I've just been noticing this too when, you know, like first all sorts of things. I mentioned tenure. 
Like <laughs> they would definitely know what tenure was. And, yeah. and most of them had no idea what tenure was. For, it's it's insane professors. that they don't know the details of our lives. <laughs> yeah. It's like, <laughs> they don't even, they won't even know that I'm up for full professor this year. <laughs> I, you know, this is shameful, but, but we've, we've talked about this before when we're, when we're at a conference and we're talking to our colleagues and somebody mentions our podcast and someone says, Oh, you have a podcast. I'm like, fuck you. You knew that. <laughs> Everybody knows that. <laughs> I know. I get like a inner, like, fuck you <laughs> uh so so that's but then i'm also really modest and humble about it oh yeah i would never yeah. actually let them know like you know <laughs> so this phenomenon actually that thinking that other people know the same things that you know or or have the same attitudes that you have is called the false consensus effect in social mm-hmm. psychology it's it's sort of inflating how similar people are to you and that's what seems to be going on with experts they seem to think that people must know a lot more than they actually do because of false consensus. So they're not self-enhancing oh, okay. and, and they're not self-effacing either. So I think one of the w- one of the findings that illustrates this is that if you um if you get an expert say like um you know ask me about Star Trek trivia, right? Mm-hmm. I actually think people know a lot about Star Trek a lot more than they actually do. Um so if you ask me how how much do I know about Star Trek uh, and make me rank it in terms of percentile, like compared to the population, I get it wrong. So I actually undershoot how how much I know about Star Trek because I think most people, you know, know some some about Star Trek. If, on the other hand, you ask me, if you say, "Hey, I'm going to ask you 30 questions, 30 trivia questions about Star Trek," how many do you think you'll get right? There, I'm actually re- well calibrated. Like there, okay. and that's something that doesn't happen at the, at the levels of ignorance. The, the, the people on the low end, the people who are overestimating their knowledge, they overestimated both the raw amount, like, and the percentile amount and people at the top end, they're pretty good at knowing what they don't know. So this all boils down to what I think the interesting part is, is that we just, it's the Rumsfeld's unknown unknown, right? Yeah. We, we have no idea how much we don't know about something. Right. And yeah. And this is, uh, this is an, an idea that traces back in Western philosophy to Socrates, where he was declared the wisest man in Athens. And he said it was because only he is aware of how much he doesn't know. And it's funny because I used to think of that as just some sort of mock humility. Yeah, well, he can come off as mock humility sometimes in some of the dialogues, but I do think there, from you know, from what I understand, the historical Socrates really did have that attitude that it that that the way in which he was wiser than all the other Athenian citizens was that they were com- all overconfident that they knew about the world, about moral knowledge, about. Um, what a good life was about why you know it was important to have the job or the political office that they did and uh, right. but it does often also come out as i sometimes false modesty <laughs> right right yeah so there's this tough thing where you know like one of the reasons that social psychologists study this so much is that you know at first it was like well 
overconfidence is a problem, right? Like it'll lead you to make all sorts of errors. And so, so it's, it's of concern for that reason. And so a lot of people, you know, used to talk about, well, they still do like, well, why do we have these overconfidence effects? Um, now maybe that they're just cultural, maybe that, that it's like, you know, yeah. Japanese, right. They all underestimate their. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Right. There is some, I think research, um, don't quote me on it, that, that shows that what, what collectivist individuals do is they, they don't self-enhance, they group enhance. Mm-hmm. So maybe that there is still a general tendency to view, um, you know, at some level, view things in, in a more positive light than they actually are. That would make sense if you identify with the group. Yeah. Then yeah. that self-enhancement property would apply to that and not to you as an individual. Right. Uh, some people have argued that that overconfidence is actually a good thing because it, um, one, makes you happier. So there's this really depressing sort of literature um, on depressive realism that when you're yeah. depressed, you actually seem to be more accurate <laughs> about your skills and abilities. Yeah. Um, and so some people have argued that, yeah, like thinking that you're slightly better than you are is actually good for you. Uh, yeah right optimism is uh uh, greater irrational optimism leads to greater success that's right uh, right. in the long run there's that effect i mean we all i think i have been driven often by irrational confidence and (laughs) undue optimism and um so it's all humility on my end (laughs) yeah i'm sure (laughs) the most and i often tell like i've i've feel like students in academia these days are erring on the other end but maybe they're just being so pessimistic because that's the real state of affairs right now in the job market and grad school Uh, yeah i mean because it's kind of that's just never how i thought of things it just seems like that's a terrible way to live (laughs) is to believe that stuff right right like get a healthy healthy dose of (laughs) of overconfidence um you know, I don't know what the right answer is. Like where I was going with this is like, it's hard to know, you know, like is accuracy the goal, right? So I think the Dunning-Kruger effect is distressing because it's saying, it's not just that everybody's miscalibrated a bit. It's that the most ignorant people are the most miscalibrated. And so it seems to be that like, we should, we should avoid this. We should, we should either be, you know, just more humble about what it is that we know <laughs> or maybe not even like, you know, don't, don't ever just take one class in something. <laughs> like maybe we're creating a bunch of like, well, that is one to- of the ideas, right? Is just stop filling your head with too much knowledge. Um, because unless you're really diving into something, you're just not, you're going to, it's going to end up doing more harm than good in terms of your understanding of that field. Right. right. So like, do you think our liberal arts education is creating a bunch of Dunning-Kruger effects? Like, b- because you take one class in art history, you take, you know, w- one class in art anthropology. Um, I mean, pos- so here's a con potential confound. Okay. I also think that this is something very characteristic of young people and something that's very characteristic of growing older is you start to realize just how much of the world you don't know that you don't understand that's much more complicated than you once thought it was and now some sometimes that's because you just know more but i also i don't know doesn't it 
feel like as you've grown older, you start to see the complexity in things that you weren't able to see? I'm of two minds because I can actually I can get the exact opposite intuition about about things too that like I that I am more willing to speak with authority about things than than I ever was before, right? Like to like pontificate. <laughs> yeah, if you I remember actually um, when I was in grad school, I remember talking to this this person I was working with who was actually working on some of this stuff above average effects and. Uh, we were talking about expertise and I was telling him like, I don't think I'll ever feel like an expert in anything um, because it's so, it was so overwhelming to me. And he was like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, like I know for a fact that I know more about X than anybody, like than most people in the world, like you're expert in a lot of things. Like I wasn't being mock humble. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually just expressing like my- so you probably were pro- you were more modest, maybe insecure about your I was abilities. insecure for sure. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I was just kind of insufferable. I read the selfish gene and I thought I understood like, <laughs> <laughs> like the right way to understand evolutionary biology and you know that's or, that was my Right. So that was my approach. So this gets to this other this other problem that I think um, arises from nuance, which is it makes us really boring. So, uh, <laughs> so you and I have had this feeling where, like, I, I don't know, maybe I, I just remember the most recent time when you were telling me that I was hedging too much. Like, w- the more expert I become at something, the more I want to like hedge, even hedge my hedges, qualify and everything, qualify my qualifications, and <laughs> yeah. and, and it makes for like. It makes for a real inability to communicate action. I mean, one of the reasons to be believe firmly in something is because it leads you to act. If you don't believe yeah. anything, then like, why would you do anything? Yeah, you know? no, that's right. And as someone who has edited some of your just like, <laughs> endless sentences with constant qualification. <laughs> Like you'll probably Sometimes you just qualify everything and you never get to what you I never actually, pop back up to the stack. I never pop actual, all the way back up to the to stack. To the actual view that you were going to express. <laughs> you know, I heard Sarah uh, on the Rationally Speaking podcast, uh, Julia Gall- Galliff Galif had uh, Sarah Hader on and they were talking about this and they were talking about the fact that nuance is a real trade-off because once you inject nuance into your dialogues with others and even just in the way you think about things it really does make you a less inclined to inspire action and passion in others and b uh harder to get yourself as motivated and and it's a trade-off that sometimes is a good trade-off to make but maybe sometimes isn't right and you know, this this really matters in the way that we communicate, for instance, say science to the to the public, right? So one of the things that that I think academics are always getting annoyed at is when when somebody like a, a journalist or whatever writes up something and they speak with it as if it's as if it's just true. And we know yeah. all of the ways in which it's not true. Um but it's something that that I've had to kind of disabuse myself of in 
I remember one of the first times that I was on a live radio interview. I sucked. It sucked. They didn't even like I was talking like a professor and they were out of time. Like I yeah. didn't even get to the, you know, to 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 the point. And I had to learn, which I don't learn in this podcast because I know you're going to edit it. <laughs> um, I had to learn how to say things in 10 seconds. But I always think, well, maybe it's just that the the uncertainty that I have, like uh, about what I know about human psychology, for instance, is an uncertainty that seems it seems like a hu- like huge variance. Like if you had error bars on my on my views or whatever like it would seem huge like the confidence interview intervals would seem huge but the truth is compared to everybody else like i actually probably know things with a degree of certainty that i am failing to convey because my comparison is my peers when i'm giving like a talk and they're like yeah. well did you control for this or whatever mm-hmm. um and and i it's a hard balance to strike because if you really want to get people to you know, believe something, you know, maybe this, maybe this is why people still consistently find ways to, uh, to misinterpret science. Um, yeah, because we're always hedging. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting because, and and it connects to that overestimate, overestimation of how much other people know. And so that leads you to think that, certain things need to be qualified just because they'll already know the right yeah and <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i, I even... really struggled with that with the, when i was doing interviews and podcasts for the honor book like i just and i don't think i ever figured it out especially for the really shorter for the shorter pieces just how to convey something with confidence you know on a on a topic that i felt ambivalent about to some degree Right. Um, yeah. And I, I honestly, like I, 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 I'd have to really try to get better at that if I did another one of those things. Uh, yeah. We've talked about this a bit about how, how, you know, one of the things I liked about your book was that you, you were nuanced and you weren't like making crazy claims, but, but you know, like yeah. that's maybe that just doesn't sell like that's you know nobody wants to hear people hedging right <laughs> it's no things for no people it's like <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but yet it still managed to also piss people off yeah yeah uh, that's the, best of yeah. all worlds. <laughs> it was so i have a couple questions about yeah. so this comes from the article the review the long review you send me where he talks about reach around knowledge <laughs> <laughs> You know what, what is man? reach around? Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir. Are you a Peter Pupper? Sir, no, sir. I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a person in the ass and not even have the goddamn common courtesy to give him a reach around. I'll be watching you. Dude, I cannot like I I had a text message. Um, <laughs> one of my one of my former students whose whose main advisor was Dave Dunning. Yeah. And I like I screenshotted it and I was like, is he just fucking with us? I did, yeah, that's what I wanted to know first. <laughs> I mean, I want to know what it is, but mainly I want to know did was he was that a joke? Like, did he do that kind I, of intentionally? Our theory is that he is just he is Tobias Funke's long lost brother. <laughs> <laughs> because later on he talks about bottom performers <laughs> and top performers, and I'm like, no. No, Dave, no. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I, 
I think I think all what he means by reach around knowledge, Jesus Christ, what he means by reach around knowledge is um is just when you you just use whatever knowledge you have at hand. Yeah. To like, like he's referring to why people answer like like with certainty that they know something about something that's completely made up. So like um if I ask you what's what's the uh uh like if he asks about yes in in one study uh people asked what they think about the agricultural trade act which is just a fictitious act. Yeah. It's not like it doesn't actually exist. What they do is they reach for whatever similar shit they think they can talk about and they use that to respond um to 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 this question like they're they're they don't have any real domain specific knowledge like they just find whatever in their in their heads and use that <laughs> they reach around grab that knowledge and, <laughs> yeah um, uh so yeah i mean the jimmy kimmel stuff that he talks about where he goes and interviews people at south by southwest about exactly he asks them about fake bands now you might think well, they don't know anything about the band. And I thought when people didn't know anything, they didn't overestimate their knowledge. But in this case, they know about music in general. And and so they have something to reach around uh, and grab. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, why? why? I, I, yeah, so that's... Um, <laughs> So that, that that was one question. And again, it's like you if you're on Jimmy Kimmel Live, like you could say I've never heard of them, but that's boring. It's just sort of it's like boring, what we were right? talking about before. Um being really honest about your uh lack of knowledge is not that interesting. You don't often get to be on Jimmy Kimmel. So Right. Uh, and this is ha- have you had this experience though that um that it took me a while to have the confidence to tell students, I don't know, when they asked the question. Like, I remember thinking that my role was, well, like, to reach around and grab whatever you know and, like, construct an answer. Um, but when I realized that, honestly, I didn't know the answer, and I was able to say, like, oh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. You know, or, like, I'll look it up or whatever. Or if anybody yeah. in the class wants to look it up. It, it feels so much better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it does. I, 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 I've, I don't know if I had trouble earlier. I know f- for a while I was very comfortable saying I don't know yeah. about. Which isn't to say that I don't still sometimes do that kind of pontificating about um, yeah. if, I, if I feel like I, that there's something i can connect to their question but um but yeah i say i don't know all the time good question i I have no idea so how do so one way of addressing this so he he talks about people who have just taken a driving class are more likely to get into accidents because (laughs) now they feel like they have certain skills and he says in cases like this the most enlightened approach as proposed by swedish researcher niels Petter Gregerson may be to avoid teaching such skills at all. Instead of training drivers how to negotiate icy conditions, perhaps classes who just convey the inherent danger, they should scare inexperienced students away from driving in winter conditions in the first place and leave it at that. I mean, I, I, there is something to this. I don't know about just scaring them, 
Yeah, <laughs> there is something about maybe the right approach is to let people figure out their skills themselves rather right. than giving them a the skills that and and trying to impose it on them. And that seemed that's like a yeah, that it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, but but it talks about this in the longer article in cases of say um, medical students training where uh, they have a little bit of knowledge so they they sort of act with confidence when I, I believe one of the examples was in treating a wound um there's like you know 10 things that you have to be very careful about lest the wound get infected mm. and they they know like 3 of them right they have 3 or 4 of them and because they seem they they think that there are only 3 or 4 things to know they think they did a great job but this can like lead to actual like you know actual people dying amputations yeah right and and so how do you get them or the inexperienced driver to know when you maybe shouldn't go out on the road or know when you should ask a senior medical uh, you know if you don't even know that you didn't know that um what like why would you go ask somebody did i do it right and i feel like giving the experience of failure somehow must like ought to be a good way to communicate it and like there has to be a good way yeah. to give that feedback like a driving simulator or even a video of of somebody in an accident like show how quickly things can happen right yeah yeah i mean uh he suggests this when you're teaching science or teaching you know i think he uses the example of evolutionary theory teach it in such a way that they're going to misinterpret it and then show them how they misinterpret it. Mm, yeah. That's sort of what you're talking about. You give them the experience of failure. You just show them flat out how prone they were to misinterpret something that they thought they knew. And that's a good way of learning what the right interpretation is. Right. You know, um, in the Star Trek universe, Oh, no. <laughs> somebody tweeted about this uh, um, and it's a great example there is a when they're training cadets um, they put them through a simulation it's called the Kobayashi Maru and the simulation is like okay you're piloting the ship and some you know whatever Klingons start attacking your ship and you have to make the decisions that will um, wh like which decisions will you make to get you out of the situation and the but the test is rigged such that no decision ever leads to success. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of the test is to show the cadets that there will be no win situations, mm -hmm. right? That there will be times when you actually get everything wrong and the, you fail through no fault of, of your own. There's no amount of knowledge that could have prepared you for it. And it seems as if we ought to be able to teach this domain generally to people. Like if you're you know, trying to teach yeah. your kid, like I just don't know if, if it would work. Right. Like sometimes there's no answer. There's no good solution. There's no like it. It's just I, you know, uh, I was reading in an earlier class, Schwangza, um, which is an early text in the Taoist philosophy. And one of the big messages of that text is that our perspectives are so limited and we know so little the big mistake is not recognizing that. So very Socrates-like in that sense. 
not recognizing it leads to all sorts of political disasters. It leads to personal disasters. It leads to all, all sorts of misunderstandings and tragedies. But unlike Socrates, whose solution to that was to keep interrogating the world until your ignorance gets diminished a bit, his solution seemed to be to just not even try. Like, don't, because it's just too, it's too impossible. It's too daunting. It is like just understanding the world with, from a, uh, a perspective as limited as ours is just not possible. So stop thinking that you can do it. Stop even trying to do it. Stop even right. trying to it. Cause you, cause it, like, I guess the worry is in some sense, the best you can do is get to that point where you'll start vastly overestimating how much you know. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, like you'll get to that point on the Dunning-Kruger effect, and that's the worst situation that you can be in. So like if you take the Socrates path, that's where you're going to end up. And um, there's something very depressing about that, paralyzing, but it's interesting. It might be right, you know? It might be like, I, I just don't know how far do you take that? Like, because it seems as if not like it would require you to just do less shit. So like take an example from, from our own podcast and we often say things like this, like, well, you and I don't know shit about Ecclesiastes really, right? There's yeah. people who's like dedicate their lives to studying the, the books of wisdom. So we kind of go into it, you know, our remedy is to just sort of admit that we don't know anything and still have fun doing it. But that's because it's sort of a low consequence action. Yeah. But like there's tons of stuff that like, you know, I'm sure I'm overconfident in my driving. Like, what do I do? Do I not drive? Right. Like there's a there's a weird way in which you just have to like bite the bullet and say, like, I know enough about this thing to do a thing. But what about something like supporting a political candidate? Yeah. Uh, um, that's why because I don't that's why I don't like voting. Our knowledge is so <laughs> limited of politics, economics, healthcare, climate science. It's so limited. If you took this view, it would be hard to justify going door to door and, you know, volunteer for some politician to uh, get elected, you know, Bernie yeah. or whoever, Beto. <laughs> right. Um, well, and, you know, because that takes a lot, that kind of activism, political activism, it would seem like would just disappear if you took that, Schwang's approach of just you know this is awesome often a not awesome often a criticism of the more liberal mentality not so much impugning conservatives for being overconfident but rather accusing liberals of being so uncertain so as to not be able to really commit to anything and it's in stark contrast to the certainty right so when you were giving that example i was like yeah you know what would happen it's just the conservatives would win because they're more willing to say like, you know, I know. And, and this isn't a condemnation, right? There's times there's time when you need to act and just bite the bullet and act and, uh, with limited information. And the error of not acting might be worse. But but I feel like it, there is something, at least in modern in modern politics, about the wishy-washiness of a liberal compared to the certainty of, of the conservatives. Well, and that's more centrist liberal because then there is the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. you know, the activist progressives who yeah. um, share the passion and certainty of their, of the people on, uh, of, on the right. And right. actually that's why they're making 
big inroads in the Democratic Party, right? Because they have that energy and and the inspiration that, you know, the, the wafflers don't have. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. It's sort of like, you know, you have to pick your poison and then and then act confidently about it. And it's like it's a hard step for me to take um, in that domain in particular, because I'm like, I'm a waffler. I think I need to reach around more often. (laughs) We should all reach around Mm -hmm. have the goddamn courtesy. (laughs) I have a question about one of these studies. Yeah. So they asked uh, people among this is uh, they among conservatives, 27 percent relative to just 10 percent of liberals agreed both that President Obama's rhetorical skills are elegant, but are insufficient to influence major international issues and that President Obama has not done enough to use his rhetorical skills to affect regime change in Iraq. Those don't seem inconsistent. Yeah, <laughs> As you were saying it to me, I was wait, I was waiting for the uh, for the gotcha. I, I mean, I, I just like the President Obama. I don't even know what that means. I mean, President Obama has not done enough to use his rhetorical skills to it. Like that. That's uh, so that sentence doesn't even make sense. But I but if I, the best sense I can make of it, it is is not inconsistent with it might there might be some tension but it's not inconsistent with the first so i think that if you take these as uh, like his president obama's rhetorical skills are insufficient to influence major international issues you're saying like his rhetorical skills can never make a change and then he's not he's not using his his rhetorical skills to make a change enough Right. If you've just said that he can't, he's incapable of of his rhetoric is incapable of a change, then ought implies can. Yeah, I guess. But like you could also interpret using a principle of charity that this is what they're how they're interpreting it is he hasn't tried to develop his rhetorical skills enough in a way that would make a change in Iraq. I mean, like. Maybe logically, if you interpret strictly, literally, these sentences, but that's just not how we understand sentences. I I mean, I agree with you. Yeah, (laughs) I agree with you. Like, I that's why it took me a second careful reading to even find that. um, Because I think, you know, I think this is just true in in social psychology in general. I find that, like, often some of the examples they're betraying such an agenda. Yeah, like what what they choose to ask people about in they, you know, we I should say, often literally have zero clue that what we've just asked is is like <laughs> is betraying this ignorance about like um, even when actually, you're testing the the Dunning exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Um, God knows all the ways that we've betrayed you know, our ignorance with it's shtick for us. We know all the errors we're making. We're just doing them just for your entertainment. (laughs) Every single error we're making, we're aware of, (laughs) and we're doing it to inspire you, um, (laughs) to imagine, uh, yourself better. I don't know. My big Dunning Kruger is I'll start a sentence thinking I know how to finish (laughs) it properly. And often I just don't. And it you just, just have wanders. to finish it with confidence, no matter what you say. Just finish it louder and with more confidence than you started it. And then just with a nod. 
<laughs> you know, like in a Q&A, sometimes you, yeah. you just have to give that nod to indicate that you're done because oh, yeah. there's, and, <laughs> there's nothing nothing in the actual words that indicates that, that it's done. I, I, <laughs> I give a very confident non-answer. I pause for three seconds while I'm nodding, and then I yeah. say, I hope that answered your question, and then I just move on. Right. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Oh, over <laughs> <Next>. there. <laughs> You've had your hand up for a while, yeah. <laughs> so, so that you get like fairness norms, like preventing them from interrupting you. With yes, right. the disabled person in the back had a question. <laughs> You've been waiting patiently, <laughs> sir. God, I'm going to use that for real. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not disabled. Wait, whatever. Wait, go ahead. Go ahead. Ask your question. <laughs> Uh, All right. (laughs) Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. Just a very bad wizard.